Evening. I was really impressed because I thought, oh, look, they're all sitting together because they're that kind of community, but it really wasn't that at all. Sure, it wasn't. It was just you were told to because you were doing communion. But hey, maybe it's a start. Maybe it's a start. Don't say her name, but put your hand up if you know who she is. Put your hand up if you're over 40 and you know who she is. That's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive because uh, most of us who are over 40 really don't know that much about her. Um, Her name is Lily Allen, famous for her singing, infamous for some other things. I don't want to talk about her. I actually discovered a few months ago that she had quite a famous father as well. Um, Put your hand up if you know who her father is. Yeah, some of you do. That's that's not bad at all. His name's Keith Allen. And... uh, you will maybe know him if you watch BBC One on a Saturday. Oh, yes, the pennies dropped there, I see, for some people. He's the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, and uh, quite a character. A few months ago, for some inexplicable reason, I let the male species down, and I lost control of the remote control. And uh, in the, uh, the ensuing whatever, um, we came across Keith Allen on TV. And the program, the program that, that uh, Nicola had managed to find, the title went something like this. Keith Allen, Burn in Hell. Anybody see it? Okay. Not a very pleasant title for a TV program. And usually not the sort of thing, if I saw it in the title, I, not the sort of thing I would, I would watch, but Nicola had the control and I couldn't do anything about it. But anyhow, it was a fascinating program because it told the story of Keith Allen's encounter with a church, and I use the term very uh, loosely, but a church called Westboro Baptist Church. Thankfully not in our association. Um, but a church that has become famous or notorious in the States. You may have come across them. Um, They have basically started a movement against America, and particularly about homosexuality. So this sounds like um, God hates fags, Um, God is your enemy, thank God for dead soldiers, Um, uh, thank God for IEDs, which is some kind of improvised explosive devices or something that are used against American soldiers in Iraq. And uh, they, uh, they get their kids out, you know, don't pray for the USA. Um, you're going to hell, AIDS cures fags and stuff like this. And I think the fact that they get children involved in it just adds to the, um, to me, the horror of it. And what they do with these placards is they picket the funerals of homosexuals and they picket the funerals of soldiers who have been killed in Iraq. Uh, so, you know, a family will be having, you know, having their grief and this church will turn up with these placards. And they're praising God because they say each time an American soldier is killed in Iraq, it's God's punishment on America for tolerating homosexuality. And the same is true when they, when they pick at these funerals. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's just shocking. And Keith Allen got into, at times, absolutely furious debate with them. And it wasn't pleasant viewing, but I thought, I've got to watch this and see where it goes. Unfortunately, some of his behaviour cheapened the whole thing. 
Because for me, this church had some serious questions to answer. And unfortunately, his, his attitude and the way he got on took the focus away from the really hard questions that I felt these people needed to be asked. But basically, we just found the whole thing really, really sad. And my only thought at the end of the program, I, I just couldn't help, I, I just one thought, where is Jesus in this church? Where is the master that they're supposed to be following? What did I see of Jesus in the people who claim to be followers of him? This series that we're doing called um, Keeping the Dream Alive is uh, looking at the early church and and seeing how they impacted their world. Uh, And they weren't worldly wise and influential community. They they didn't have the ear of the emperor or the the president. And they didn't have the lead politicians on on their case. And yet they quite literally changed their world under the power of God. And for me, one of the main reasons is because their God was real. And his name was Jesus Christ. And they were fearless about representing him and living for him and sharing him with the people around them. If you're a good Baptist, you'll know Acts 2.42 very well. Um, We know that the early church were committed to learning from the apostles' teaching. They continued steadfastly, if you use that, that version, in the apostles' doctrine. But what did the apostles have to teach? What do you think the apostles taught? You can speak out loud, it's all right. What did they teach? They taught Jesus. They actually, I don't think they had very much else to teach. Jesus was their area of expertise. From what we would pick up, they weren't Old Testament experts. Because only the best of Jewish scholars made it to that standard of education and attached themselves to a leading rabbi. The rest would go into the family business and and that kind of job. You know the kinds of occupations like fishing, from where Jesus pulled his ordinary followers. And so as you put together who they were, whilst they would have had some grounding in the Old Testament, that really wasn't their field. Their area of expertise was Jesus. So that's what they taught. In fact, they repeatedly pointed that out. Some uh, references in, in Acts 4 verse 20. We cannot stop telling about the wonderful things we have seen and heard. Acts 5.32, as they were talking about some of the truth about Jesus, we are witnesses of these things. Acts 10.39, we are witnesses of all he did throughout Israel and in Jerusalem. And then Peter would write in in his epistle, "We, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And then John would would write this. He would start his epistle with this. 1 John chapter 1. The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ, the word of life. This one who is life from God was shown to us and we have seen him. Just in case you didn't get the message. And now we testify and announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was shown to us. We are telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. So that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You think John's trying to get the message across that they had actually seen Jesus. They wanted to talk 
about Jesus. And then actually, if you read through the book of Acts and you pay particular attention to the sermons that the apostles preached, it always had one central theme. And it always climaxed in one person, Jesus. Looking at this dream that Jesus left for the church of changing the world, trying to learn from the early church and and why they were able to make that dream a reality. For me, one of the inescapable conclusions is because they were a church that was full of Jesus Christ. They were absolutely centered on Jesus. He was the very heart of their life and teaching. Now I guess in many ways that sounds a very obvious thing to say. But I just can't help wondering if the church forgets it now and again. Now maybe this is a rash generalization. Forgive me if it is. But might it not be true that an awful lot of Christian preaching and teaching today doesn't say an awful lot about Jesus? It's almost as if Jesus is left for Sunday school and for children's stories or at the very best for for taking some episodes out of the Gospels and spiritualizing them but not actually addressing the real Jesus in the middle of them, whilst we go on to deeper things. You know, most preaching done from the epistles or from the Old Testament prophets and writings, and and Jesus can often be missed out. I've even heard uh, major speakers of world renown, and I'll not not drop any names at all, but I've heard them do whole series of Bible teaching for a week on God and hardly ever mention the name of Jesus. Now maybe you need to observe that for a while to see if it's true or if I'm just imagining things. But if anybody tries to teach us about God and leaves Jesus out, they have made a huge mistake. It's appropriate on on an evening when we're having communion to think about Jesus and to grasp why he is so important for us as church today and why we must make sure he he is at the very heart of everything we do and everything we are because a church that is centered on Jesus Christ will impact the world and I just want to give three dead simple straightforward reasons why we need to focus on Jesus the first reason is this Jesus came to show us God Jesus is God And Jesus came to reveal God to us. Paul would write this. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. For as long as I can remember, my dad has hung stuff out for the birds in the back garden. I mean, and just this whole collection of of birds come to to get the goodies. They're they're just always there and he has the kids interested in it. And you can watch them from inside the house. He's got this kind of little sunroom place where where you can sit there quite a distance away from the birds and, and watch them come and get it. But you know this, as soon as they notice you move, even though you're inside the house and they're on the other side of the garden, they're startled and off they go because they're scared. You just, you know, you're too big, you're too scary, and the thoughts that you might be coming anywhere near to them is enough to make them scarper, even though you're quite a distance away. You just can't get close to them. And if they fly away when you move from inside the house, then you know there's no chance of you ever going up 
um, and, and getting alongside them. Even though what you want to do is maybe care for them or feed them or admire them or talk to them if that's what you want to do. They just can't grasp it because you're too big and you're too scary. And probably the only way to get close to those birds would be to turn yourself into a bird and fly up to them and talk Tweety language or whatever it is you do to communicate with birds. Now that's dead simple and it's a very crude picture. But maybe it helps us understand in some way why Jesus is so important. Because if the only God we could see is the God that we see in many of the Old Testament stories, we wouldn't get the whole picture. He might seem too big. And that's because he is too big. He's absolutely awesome. He's the strong creator. He's the mighty God. He's the holy one, the king of kings, and a whole lot more besides. He's the God who we believe holds the futures of nations and the universe in his hands. And much of what we read in the Old Testament paints quite a scary picture of a God fighting on behalf of his people, conquering the enemies of his people, acting in power. And yes, there's so much more in Scripture. We do see his love for people. We do see his pain at their rebellion. But maybe for us it's easier because we can see the whole story and it's easier to identify those things. Why is it easier? Because of Jesus. Because we have encountered Jesus who came to show us what God is like. God taking steps to be like us. To talk our language. To take on our form. To go through our experiences. John himself would tell us the word became flesh and pitched his tent right among us. The incarnation is God coming to us in a way that we can understand and a way in which we don't have to be scared. Philip Yancey, probably my favourite writer, said this. In Jesus, God gave us a face. And I can read directly in that face how God feels about people. Yes, sure, there's mercy in the Old Testament. But the mercy bit could easily be forgotten in the midst of all the law and the judgment. And so the people raised in that culture of law and sacrifice and failure... Jesus likened God to a shepherd who had 99 sheep safely tucked away and yet would risk life and limb to go and find the lost one. He likened God to a father who just can't stop thinking about an ungrateful son who has insulted him deeply, basically told him, I can't wait for you to die, I want your money. He revealed a God who went out of his way to embrace the outsiders, the unloved, the people that were untouched by proper society, went out of his way to prove that nobodies matter to God. One of my favourite quotations ever about the Bible, summing it up, is that it's the story of a God reckless with desire to get his family back. And Jesus came to show us what that God is like. We must centre on Jesus because he's the one who fully shows us what God is like. But there's a second reason why we need to have Jesus at the heart of our church. Because Jesus came to bring us back to God. Our world at the minute is facing some major upheavals. What's going on in, in Pakistan and in Afghanistan and in Iraq and the problems of poverty that we were thinking about this morning. And, and a world where a young student would be brutally murdered um, and left, left to die by allegedly her friends and that's just for starters we've got problems 
And yet humanity has a bigger problem than any of these things. And the problem that's at the root of all of it, the problem is alienation from God. And it was our choice. God created a perfect world, but he granted humanity the dignity of choosing whether or not to enjoy the perfection. And as we know from scripture, Adam and Eve fell for the lies of Satan. And as a consequence, the world was spoiled and we were alienated from God. Our sin, which isn't a popular word, but it's a reality. Our sin puts this barrier up between us and God. And not just that, that sin is an affront to his holiness, an affront to his perfection. And so it demands his judgment. And before you, you come back at me at a couple of points, sir, let, me just, let me just say a couple of things. Adam and Eve weren't just the first people. And we aren't just suffering because of them. They're also, the Bible teaches us clearly, they're representatives of us all. They show what we would have done if we had been in the same position. I mean, let's face it. Haven't we all deliberately chosen to do wrong? You know that time when you said, I shouldn't really be saying this. But, (laughs) and we come out and say it. We all choose to do wrong. We can't pass the buck. We can't blame anyone else. And secondly, maybe you're not comfortable with this judgment thing. A a God who would judge. And I just want to ask you this question. Do you want a God who just lets sin go? Do you want a God who, who tells people that acts of murder and rape and brutality that, that we see and, and all the other things that you can think of? Do you want a God who says, actually, do you know what? It doesn't matter. Is that the kind of God you want? Well, God's character can't just let things go. God just can't shrug his shoulders and, and let the world go to pot. There are at least two things in God's character that can't let that happen. One is his justice. And the other is his love. God's justice demands that sin be dealt with. But God's love also demands a way for God to get his family back. The solution to both of those things, it's the cross of Jesus. God himself taking our place. Becoming our substitute. Paying the price of sin. Taking the punishment on himself. In Graham Kendrick's great song, The Cross, the place where wrath and mercy meet. God forgiving our sin by taking our sin. God defeating death by dying himself. And the powers of hell must have thought that at Calvary, in killing God's son, that all hope was lost for humanity to be restored to God. But actually, no. Because the most heinous crime in the history of the world actually becomes the source of our healing. God takes history's worst crime and turns it into history's greatest victory, proving it by the resurrection. I think it was Yancey who said this. Our faith begins where it might have seemed to end. Between the cross and the empty tomb hovers the promise of history. Hope for the world and hope for each one of us who lives in it. The best news that we could ever have And a crucial reason why Jesus must be central to our church. He's the only one who brings us back to God. So Jesus came to show us what God is like. Jesus came to bring us back to God. But he did something more. Jesus came to show us how to live 
as God intended. Jesus is our example. He said it quite clearly to his disciples at one point. I have given you an example to follow. And regularly he called people to take up their cross and and follow him. And this is where I um, get something off my chest. Because this is where I get frustrated sometimes with church. Or at least with certain elements within the church. Because the Christian thought police are out there. And they're watching and they're listening. And I want to make sure that we're still preaching those core truths of the gospel. And especially the truths about Jesus being the only one who can reconcile us to God. And in the past couple of years, if you've been paying attention to the Christian press in the UK, there's been quite a bit of controversy about some people within the church who allegedly are downplaying the truth that Jesus took God's punishment on our behalf. Well, we have just covered how important that truth is. But many people are quick to jump to theological arguments when someone else challenges some aspect of theology about Jesus. But here's my problem. They're never as quick to jump when Christians don't behave like Jesus. We reserve our criticism when somebody gets theology wrong, but actually you can behave whatever way you like and we'll not get too uptight about that. And to me, there's just something not right there. We cannot separate what we believe about Jesus from behaving like Jesus. We don't give the impression that it doesn't matter how you behave as long as you can say, I believe all the right things. And there's no higher authority than Jesus himself for that. This is what he said in Matthew seven twenty one. Not all those who say that I am their Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. The only people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do what my Father in heaven wants. The Christian faith has no room For separating what we believe from how we behave. Faith and practice go hand in hand. And the church that wants to make an impact in the world, like the early church, will back up what it wants to teach about Jesus with living like Jesus. The body of Christ living like Christ. Actually looking like Jesus. And yet so much of our behaviour looks nothing like Jesus. The Bible is full of exhortations and challenges. Just think of a few of the things about Jesus. Like this question. Why do the people whom Jesus attracted find themselves often so uncomfortable with church and even made unwelcome? And what would it take for us to be a church that is known To welcome those whom society despises. Jesus touched lepers. It was actually a certain David McMillan that pointed this out to us once at Bible College. Reminding us that when you touched a leper, you were breaking the rules. You were breaking the religious rules. Jesus wasn't afraid to break the rules. To bring love to people. He ate with tax collectors, those who were viewed as traitors and collaborators. He treated prostitutes and adulterers with compassion whilst challenging them to do better. 
and shock of shocks, he welcomed children and Samaritans who were the other sort and women. Which of course in his day was you know, something brand new. But Jesus wasn't afraid about what his day said. He brought a whole new way of behaving. A whole new value system. The wisdom of the day said you didn't touch unclean people. Because that would make you unclean. But Jesus showed a different way. He didn't become unclean. But they became clean when he touched them. And so instead of giving out a message that says no undesirables allowed, Jesus said, actually, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. Nancy tells the story of a skeptic who once commented on Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The the skeptic said this, It is a shocking, morally anarchic story. All that matters in the story appears to be God's capacity to forgive. Exactly. (laughs) That's the point. And Jesus has left no visible body on earth except the church. This is where Jesus lives. And this is where Jesus is supposed to be revealed to the world in collections of people like us. And our task is to bring this Jesus to the world so that he can still change people today. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see that regularly the church had to face the challenge of of heresy. And most of the heresies, as I read it, seem to centre on denying the deity of Jesus. People challenging the, the teaching that Jesus was God. And I just wonder if today we do the exact opposite. And we're so concerned with getting the deity of Jesus right, that we forget about the humanity of Jesus. And we forget about the role that he played in giving us the perfect example Of living the way God intends. For Jesus isn't just a theological argument. For us to make sure we get right. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our Lord. Our teacher. And we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. And seek to emulate him. He is the heart of our faith. It's all about him. He's the answer to what our world needs. And I just think it's time that the church took Jesus more seriously and brought him right back to the heart of everything we do. Make him the focus of our teaching and of our lives. I bumped into John Duncan. Some of you will know John Duncan from Youth for Christ. He looks after their European stuff. And We had both been preaching in London actually one Sunday and bumped into each other at Luton Airport on on the way home. And and we we just got talking about this. John used to be in charge of what I think was the largest youth club in the UK happened in, in the YMCA in Belfast for, for many years and, and uh, they had a pile of kids in there he said it was often a riot and they tried to do a God slot as he called it in the middle of the evening and they would have speakers of world renown and it didn't matter to these kids how world renowned you were they were just causing a riot and John said except any time they talked about Jesus he said miraculously you could always notice it when they shared Jesus There was silence and they listened. Actually, Jesus said something like that. Present Jesus to people. Lift him up. And he said himself he would draw people to him. And that includes teaching the truth about him theologically. But it also includes living after the pattern 
that he gives us. And a church today that wants to change the world will be the church that presents Jesus in its teaching, but also in its living. I want to finish by mentioning this book. In many ways this ties together what I was talking about this morning and this evening. Anybody read this yet? In God We Doubt. Good. So I can say whatever I like about it and you'll not be able to argue with me. It's by John Humphreys, BBC um, journalist um, the Today programme. It talks about his search for faith. I thoroughly recommend this book. It is not hard to read and it's not as big as it looks. But John Humphreys, having grown up with a kind of Christian background in nominal Methodism in, in Wales, um, he, the subtitle is Confessions of a Failed Atheist. And as he says in the book, you know, I actually badly wanted to be an atheist. But I can't manage it. And he tackles people like Richard Dawkins and very simply says, come on. He said, whatever they say, we all know there's something more out there. So they can rant all they like. That's me paraphrasing it. Um, but he also challenges religious fundamentalism. The kind of religion, whether it's Christian, um, Muslim or whatever, that pretends it has all the answers sorted out, nice and neatly packaged. He drives a tank through that kind of thinking quite easily. And in fact, if this isn't heretical for me to say, I have very little problem with anything that John Humphreys writes in here because most of the questions he has, I've got a lot of them too. But there's one thing that John Humphreys doesn't confront in his book. And I think it's the one thing that he wouldn't be able to explain away. The words Jesus Christ, to the best of my knowledge, don't appear in this book. And yet I think if John Humphreys was confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ, he would have far bigger questions to ask And he might find himself walking down the road to faith that he's edging towards. I just believe that in our world today, the church of Jesus Christ needs to show Jesus to the world. Because whatever we don't know, whatever answers we don't have, the reality of Jesus Christ is still there to confront people. And you can't explain him away. If we're going to keep this dream alive of changing the world, we better make sure that it's Jesus Christ we're teaching, and maybe more importantly, Jesus Christ that we're living.